This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. Look, I will come clean with you as I'm still not very comfortable with being out on the scene. Heading to a restaurant or to a bar to meet up with friends after a year of social distancing? Yeah, I'm not quite ready to do that. Don't get me wrong, I would love to see people and to share a hug of appreciation. But I find it very difficult to get back to life as if nothing happened. As if the past 16 months have been a temporary timeout with no consequences. I cannot help but to think of not only the changes in our shared reality, but also the tremendous losses that we suffered. I don't think I'm alone. I was just a part of a conversation last night with a group of folks who have lost loved ones and they talk about the clarity that can come with and through grief that can feel really transformative. Hmm. I can see more clearly what matters to me, where my priorities are. Yeah. I can love more deeply and widely. That is Noah Cochran from the COVID Grief Network. More from them later on in the show. We are about to dive into part two of our conversation on grief and transformation. Today, you will hear from psychiatrists, psychotherapists, authors, activists, and others as we recognize the effects of grief and invite the process of transformation. No More Normal starts now. Megan Devine is a psychotherapist, grief advocate, communication expert, and the author of the book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. This book challenges conventional thinking on grief and presents new approaches in how we can help others and ourselves. We got together on Zoom for a conversation and I asked her the obvious question. So why is it okay that I'm not okay? (laughs) Because it's the truth. Right. I think we have this idea that we're always supposed to be happy and positive and practicing gratitude and being on the top of our game. And that's just not reality 24 seven. That's true. That's true. So tell me what, what drove you to write this book and to share your story? So I'd been a practicing psychotherapist for quite a number of years and honestly was was ready to sort of move on and go do something else not sitting in an office, listening to people anymore. And before I had a chance to sort of close that practice and move on to the next fun thing to do, my partner died in an accident. Hmm. And that brought me into just a, a completely different world of grief than anything I had experienced before that. I certainly had had my share of personal grief, dealt with a lot of grief with my clients, but this was different, you know, becoming widowed under 40 is not something that's talked about very commonly. And so a lot of my own experience and what I heard from the friends who are going through similar things that I found through lots of hunting and pecking through comment sections of websites. Mm -hmm. um, So many of us had the same experience of being dismissed or cheered up or just really feeling like nobody understood us anymore. And I felt like I had some useful things to say about the state of grief, especially in Western culture, the ways that we talk about how hard it is to be human, the ways that we've been taught to support each other and how not correct and not useful those inherited ways of being supportive. They they just don't work. The things that we've been taught don't work very well. Right. And so um, being able to speak about that and make things better, not just for grieving people, but everybody who wants to be a good friend and be supportive, Mm -hmm. right? If we've been taught the wrong ways to do it, it's not really our fault if we don't know what to say when somebody's having a hard time. So that was why I wrote the book. That's why I do the work that I do to normalize how tough grief can be and also to help people learn the skills that they need to really be the kind of supportive friends they most want to be. 
And I want to talk about that, our society, how we deal with grief and death. I mean, we don't really do it well, like you said. And we're often told to get back moving, to get back to work, to this idea of our feelings of loss and suffering seems to be kind of permeated in our culture. Can you talk to me about how our society really frames dealing with death and loss? We have this idea that health is the same thing as being happy. And certainly there's a lot of factors going into that, you know, living in a capitalistic society, like the marker of health and wellness is being able to go to work and perform well and, and do all of these things that we see as sort of outward markers of success. So being human doesn't really fit into that narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, all of our entertainment, all of our stories are all that transformation hero story, right? Where if anything bad happens to you, one, you probably needed to learn a hard lesson. And this was the only way that you could learn it, Mm -hmm. which is weird. But also, you know, if something bad happens to you, if you do it, quote unquote, correctly, you become a better version of yourself and you come back bigger and stronger than you were before, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at all of our storylines, they all do this. Something bad happens, but you come out better at the end. And what that does is create this sort of unattainable ideal of what it means to be healthy, smart, human, evolved, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. And so we've got this big gap between what it's really like to be human, to have relationships, to love and to lose, not just in death, but in lots of other things versus this mirage of Hmm. nothing ever bothering you. We throw the word resiliency out a lot as if it's a badge um, that we should wear. And like, I'm resilient. Here it is. Throw anything at me, life, and I can take it. But it says nothing to the humanity of the people who suffer. Can you tell me briefly, like, how have you accepted the transition that you're in? Which transition? The transition after you lost your partner and this mm. transition of, uh, of going through periods of grief. And there are some that say, you know, the periods of grief never end right. when you lose someone, you know, yeah. and this, this transition that you made, how, what was that like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that you paired it with a mention of resilience, right? We do have a really strong resilience narrative that you are supposed to bounce back. And I think we often foist that resilience narrative as a way of not dealing with the systems that create things for which we need to be resilient, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. If you're looking at systemic racism in the medical profession, why are you supposed to be resilient against the losses that happen within that system instead of us looking at the system that creates those losses, right? So the resilience empire is something to poke at too. Bringing that back to your question about my own loss and what's sort of unspooled from that It's a really weird place to be because I love my life. Mm -hmm. I love the work that I do. It's powerful. It's meaningful. I get to see the impact that I have on individuals and on entire cultural systems. It's really cool. And my partner's dead. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that I do this particular work is because he's dead. Mm -hmm. That's never going to be okay with me. That's not a fair trade. I think we very often say like, oh, I'm sorry that happened, but look at the beauty that came out of it. Yeah. As though human relationships are transactional. So I'm always really cautious when I talk about how much I love my work because it's so easy to get stuck in that transactional analysis of humanity where 
we have this idea that you need these things in order to give a gift to the world, which is honestly rude because what kind of gift did I not get to give to the world yeah. because this happened? What gifts were taken from the world because Matt died just before his 40th birthday? So it's such a reductive way of looking at life. Yeah. In the hard moments of building a life and a career in helping grieving people and people who want to support them, it's like, that's not an easy career. And very often I'm like, what am I even doing? Why yeah. am I doing this? And for me, the question is like, what else would I do? Right? Mm -hmm. This is the life that I was given. This is the circumstance that I carry with me. And for me personally, being able to use what I lived as a way to make things better, I don't know that I could do anything else. Hmm. You know, I'm 47 years old. And in the past three years, I've lost close to 30 people close to me, um, most notably my brother-in-law on my birthday and my colleague, my former newsroom director last November. And I talked to my parents about it and they said, well, son, this is kind of the age where these things begin to happen to you. They're both 75 and they're losing lifelong friends now. You know, I think about those 30 people close to me and sometimes I feel very still. I don't feel empty, but I feel still. Like, should I have much more emotion when reflecting upon this as it continued wave after wave of death? Just, it just made me sit still to try to process these, these occurrences and, and attempt to understand. Is that a natural place to be? Because, you know, the grief that we experienced last year was compounded upon everyone, but I feel like 2018 started that grief cycle for me in many ways. So what I experienced last year, I took more, not to be stoic, but like I said, David, there was just this stillness and silence for every death and loss that I heard of. Is that kind of a, a natural way to be within this? Yeah, I think that's really normal. That is a lot of losses to sustain in a short amount of time. It doesn't matter how old you are. That's a lot of loss right? Every person deals with loss in a different way. I think because we don't talk about what's normal inside grief, lots of people have those questions around, am I doing this right? Is this weird? Mm -hmm. Any way that you respond to loss that makes sense to you is normal, right? Yeah. I like that you brought up, you mentioned stoicism and stillness in the same sentence. That's a lot of alliteration. <laughs> uh, but there's a difference between stoicism and stillness, right? Stoicism is a forced refusal to feel. Mm -hmm. Stillness is stillness, right? I think I've I think this this uh, butchering of either Rumi or Hafez has come up in my mind several times in the last several weeks, but it's something along the lines of the clear bead at the center of the whirling universe makes all the difference. Yeah. Right. And to me, I feel like even as a writer. There are some experiences that are beyond words and words can only point at them. Stillness makes perfect sense to me in a way that's the complete opposite of stoicism, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're sort of in the odd silence and that place is still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at transformation and how can we all accept what has happened in order to transform? Some people feel like they're a little bit late in the game, that they're not transforming or that they're not fully recognizing 
the losses that they have. I'd like to get your opinion and your thoughts on where we are as a society in general as we have this mass reopening happening and we don't have many stories or many people talking about the grief that comes from the loss that we experienced. There is enough challenge just in the daily practice of being human that you don't have to go looking for losses, Mm -hmm. right? When we hear news stories or personal essays saying, gosh, there's been so much loss over this last 15 months. If that doesn't feel accurate for you, you're not doing it wrong. That's okay, right? Don't go go poking. (laughs) Don't go poking. Um, And then this idea of transformation. So transformation is not required in any kind of loss. You do not have to come back bigger, better, stronger with a better understanding of what it is to be human, right? Mm -hmm. Transformation is not a requirement for anything. And acceptance for me is another really tricky word. I think that the way that we use acceptance in modern culture is to accept things willingly, to suddenly be okay because you've accepted it. Mm. That old outdated stages of grief model ends in acceptance as though grief ever actually has a finite endpoint. Yeah. I like the word allowance over acceptance. And here's how I hear the difference. If you are feeling lonely, you know, you're like, oh, you know, my person is dead and I feel really lonely and there's nothing I'm ever going to do about this. If I could just accept the fact that he was dead, I would feel better. Hmm. I don't think you need to accept things that are unacceptable. If we look at a practice of allowing, slightly different. I feel really lonely right now. It's not fair that I feel like I have to live my whole life without my partner when I had met my person and now there's just this and I can't accept it. Oh, there's that loneliness again. Hi, you feel familiar. All right, my lonely self. If I allow that right now I am feeling lonely, what do I need? What do I need to feel supported in myself? What do I need when I'm feeling lonely? Do you hear the difference? Like acceptance is almost combative. Like I will shove you back underwater, right? If we've got this beach ball of emotions, acceptance, transformation, stoicism, that's all shoving that beach ball underwater and it will pop up Mm -hmm. in other places. Mm -hmm. For me, allowance is like, ah, beach ball. Really wish you weren't here, but here you are. Let's have a cup of tea. Yeah. Very, very different. The sort of last piece of this is, the sort of emotional whiplash that we have going on in the culture right now, where so many of us shared some kind of loss over the last 15 months, right? Like this is one of the only times in recent modern history where everybody was affected in some way Mm -hmm. from losing multiple members of your family and your community because of the socioeconomic stressors and how COVID affected certain communities down to I lost my writing rhythm because my writing rhythm includes going to coffee shops and overhearing conversations and I couldn't do that. So my writing work suffered, right? Like big continuum there. Everybody was touched by something. And now there's this sort of roaring 20s part two where there's this rush to go back and party and put the past behind you and don't dwell on it. It was no big deal, which leaves a lot of people going, what just happened? Yes, yes. There is a transitional liminal stage here that is important not to rush through. This is a much longer topic, but we've been at these sort of cultural crossroads before where there has been a mass experience of loss and suffering. And if you look at a couple of time periods in recent history in the last hundred years or so, when the 
the sort of official response to wide scale pain and suffering was to stuff it under the rug, keep calm and carry on, stiff up our lip, stoicism as a cultural practice. What you see as a reverb are spikes in suicidality, domestic violence, interpersonal challenges, relationship difficulties, substance addiction. All of these things that we look at as public health crises are actually a result of ignoring grief. Hmm. So we do have a choice right now as individuals and as a cultural collective to say like, we have just been through something that really shook our foundations. Do we want to shove that under the rug and claim transformation and back to normal and resilient and everything is fine, none of this ever happened? Or do we wanna take a moment and go, that was weird. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff happened and a, a lot of emotional impact is still lingering. I, I really like the idea of embracing the awkward and making grief and loss and awkwardness into acceptable party conversations. Like go out and reconnect with your friends within public health guidelines, please. Um, yes. But go out and do the things that you longed for, but let it be okay to talk about how weird it's been. Yes. When you go do those things you longed for. Yes. Interesting that you say go out and socialize with people and talk to people, your friends, about the weirdness of what we have just been through. Because in some of those conversations I've had, people talk about not feeling whole, mm. which philosophically I see a little bit differently. I feel like we're whole throughout the entirety of our lives, but we have to adjust ourselves to the events that happen. Not to take away from someone feeling like a person who was lost, an opportunity that was lost, a creative flow that was lost is not taking from them. As a society, are we really running away from our true feelings and is that creating a deficit in our ability to move on? If you think about what many of us longed for during the high points in the U.S. of the pandemic, it was connection. It was meaning. It was the ability to feel connected. Again, like we have an opportunity right now to carry that longing forward, or we can say eh, it was no big deal. I like what you said there about wholeness. I think that we are always whole. It's just, what do we allow into that wholeness, right? Mm. Are we allowed to have loneliness inside that wholeness? Are we allowed to understand the tenuous and fragile nature of life inside that wholeness? Mm -hmm. I think because of the ways that being human is taught and resilience and positivity are taught, that we think we've sort of equated wholeness with nothing being wrong. Yeah, There's plenty wrong. I feel like we have, and I hate to use the word opportunity paired with any kind of difficulty or challenge, because I think that that gets twisted in weird ways. It, it makes it, again, back to that transactional thing. But we really do have an opportunity right now to really reflect on what did you miss? Mm -hmm. What was hard about this last 15, 16 months for you? What did you long for? And can you use those longings to help you build a life that is closer to what you want for yourself as we move ahead. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty cool opportunity. And when we don't do that, right? Like when we charge ahead and we go party mode and we like pretend everything is awesome, we're actually missing an opportunity to get what we most longed for when we didn't have it. Right. And what that does, like if you show up at the party and like everything is awesome and you don't mention the stuff you're really feeling about maybe feeling awkward and um, I'm rusty on this whole thing and all of that stuff, then it just creates atmospheres where people feel like they can't tell the truth about who they are. Yeah. And if we keep not being able to tell the truth about who we are, we are not going to get what we most missed when we couldn't have it. Mm. Like it's just not efficient. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just that's not an efficient relational style. If we say that what we want is connection and joy and meaning and community, then mm, maybe we should make some places where we can actually tell the truth about who we are and how we're feeling and what we need from each other because that makes really good community yeah yeah actual community and yeah i want to thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and being on the show megan divine is the author of the book it's okay that you're not okay thank you again a great honor to speak with you yeah you too Dr. Froma Walsh is co-director and co-founder of the Chicago Center for Family Health. She's a professor emerita in the School of Social Service Administration and Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and author of the book, Strengthening Family Resilience. Zoom was the venue for our conversation. Take a listen. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me. I really appreciate it. And let me, let me start by asking, you know, how are losses during the pandemic, how are they more complex or different than other losses we may have experienced in our lives? We've all experienced multiple losses uh, through this year, first through the traumatic deaths and the loss of loved ones, but many other losses in the loss of physical contact. And I think one of the insights is recognizing how important our human touch, our human contact, our connectedness really is mm -hmm. that we've taken for granted. I think the big one is this loss of normalcy, the shattered assumptions of our worldview of things that we take for granted, mm -hmm. that we believe are expectable, that we think are typical, that when we wake up in the day, when we look forward to a week or a month or a year, we've lost our bearings. We don't know who we can trust. Hmm. We don't know what's safe or secure, where or with whom. And the sense of control over our lives is a big loss. Maybe that's part of the transformation is learning to live better with uncertainty, learning that we have to be flexible, learning that we need to not postpone things that really matter to us, mm. telling people we love them, being with people who are important to us, because we don't want to take the future for granted anymore. You know, in your article about meaning making, hope and transcendence, mm -hmm. you talk a lot about mm -hmm. resilience oriented and systemic approach. What does that mean yeah. exactly? It means that we may not be able to control the bad things, the crisis or the challenges that we face in our lives, things that have happened to us. And there's more than three decades of research on human resilience now. And my particular area is on family resilience. What I have learned from that is that we shouldn't be overly anxious, for instance, about children's ability to bounce back after the pandemic. What we've learned from the resilience research is that most of us around the world in different types of crises or disaster situations, most people not only recover, but they grow stronger out of it. Mm -hmm. But it's more of reorienting priorities. For instance, people will say, I don't want to go back to that hectic life I lived or yeah. those commuting things I did. Yeah. I want to rework, reorganize my life. And maybe this is a time out that we've had that allows us to reflect on it. What parts of it do I value and I want to continue? 
What do I want to change to make better? This in a resilience orientation and a systemic view is, again, appreciating we can't control everything, but we are interconnected to our communities, to larger systems. And this idea about being optimistic, I think hope is the better word, Hmm. that we want to hope for a better future, but not a passive hope, an active hope that we practice. It seems often that after hardship or really extreme hardship, our society here in the United States, we're just expected to get back to work. It happens if a loved one passes away, you have a certain amount of time for bereavement. We saw it on a national mass scale during 9-11. It was even told it would be good for us psychologically just to get back to work. You know, do we pay enough attention to endings and grief in what we think of as dominant in American society. Our society has always been avoidant of grief and minimizing of its impact. I think this idea of bouncing back that many people have, that resilience is like a spring and you just go back to normal. No, it's really about bouncing forward, (laughs) which Hmm. is really how do we adapt to meet the challenges and the world that we're going to face in the future. Can you talk to me a little bit about ambiguous loss? What is that exactly? Ambiguous loss is when, for instance, we're not sure what will come back, Hmm. how our lives will change and be different, or will we need to go back to the same? So we're dealing with this ambiguity of our situation. I think maybe the term new normal for now is good. (laughs) You know, what is that new normal going to be? I think if we don't just sit back to wait to read about it in the news or hear about it on NPR, Mm -hmm. but if we see ourselves as active agents in doing what we can toward creating that new normal, Can I mention uh, the city of Chicago, where I'm a Midwestern girl, Uh and how in the fire that destroyed the city of Chicago in 1871, it just leveled the city. It was a terrible disaster, and it took a long time to recover. But because of that fire, it made the waterfront open to building parks that are now 28 miles along the lakefront. There's a way that we can not just think about getting back what we had or going back to the life, but how do we want to shape our lives moving forward and what can we all do toward that and not be passive about it? Dr. Fromer Walsh is the co-founder for the Chicago Center for Family Health. I want to thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you for sharing your expertise. I truly appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. Today, we are continuing our conversation on grief and transformation. Now that things are picking back up again, how do we move forward in our lives while processing the losses we endured? How can we understand our grief and how does that understanding lead us to transformation? Stay with us as we dig deeper. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the Kellogg Foundation and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts.
Living during a time of pandemic was difficult for everyone, particularly children. While there are plenty of reports on the difficulties young people had with education during the pandemic, we didn't hear too much about how young people and their families endured losses and grief. The Children's Grief Center in Albuquerque offers free support to young people and their families. I met up with its executive director, Jade Richardson-Bach, in their facility, which is going through some amazing renovations. We got together to talk about some of the services they offer. Jade Richardson-Bach, executive director of the Children's Grief Center, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much for having me, Khalil. Tell me about the Grief Center. What exactly do you all do? Well, this is actually our 20th anniversary of doing it, and that is providing support for young people and adults after the death of a loved one. Okay, so we're talking about grief and transformation in this episode and COVID-19. Kids had a really tough time last year with the loss of school. And with that, not only opportunities in education are lost, but very fundamental, formative socializing activities were taken away from them. Can you describe to me some of the cases that you've seen in the last year? Here at the Children's Grief Center, we loosely define grief as the feelings you feel after you lose something important to you. What we know about grief and how we respond to grief really can be applied to any significant loss. So the pandemic last year, as we all know, changed our lives. It changed our sense of safety. Maybe it changed our trust in our community or in our future and the way we thought things should be. Grieving people and the people that come to the Children's Grief Center already know that bad things happen to good people. Mm -hmm. But I feel like this past year kind of brought that lesson to almost every one of us. How can families really work to not only identify where how their child is grieving, but find ways to kind of ameliorate them and allow mm-hmm. them to go through the process? How the caregiver responds by mm-hmm. demonstrating resilience and adaptability will show the child that yes, even when we have difficulties come our way, there are ways we can respond. That's kind of difficult because it falls upon the caregiver to kind of center themselves and they may be experiencing grief. Have you heard of situations with clients who are really having a tough time themselves, therefore they find it hard to be that guiding light for the children in their lives? You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. That's what makes it so hard to be part of a grieving family or a family going through a traumatic event. Um, The caregiver who's left to kind of hold it all together, the number one thing that we tell them is, you know, it's important to maintain consistency, routine, boundaries. And that's really, really hard to do when your routine, your consistency, your sense of safety has also been upended. All of us on this planet, we actually have an opportunity to come back from this event in a new way. You know, we've all heard the expressions thrown around the new normal, the new normal, the new normal. And, you know, what that means from folks who've experienced a death and the way we talk about it at the Children's Grief Center is you can't go back to the way things were before. We have the opportunity to kind of reprioritize what's important to you and me, the lives that we want to live and how we want to go forward and how we want to transform. What would you say for a parent or a caregiver who is working with a child and they have seen a fundamental transformation of this child? What advice or tips would you give for the parent to continue to guide that kid? 
You know, I would say, first of all, change isn't bad. So we know after a traumatic event, there's two ways we can generally go kids and adults after a traumatic event. And one way is what we've all heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, which yes. sounds pretty nasty. We don't want that. And the other way is this thing called post-traumatic growth. And that is the beauty of transformation. So yes, things were not the way we wanted them to be. Yes, we learned that, um, as I said earlier, yes, sometimes bad things do happen to good people. Yeah, mm -hmm. sometimes life isn't fair. And what are we going to do with that information now that we have it? Yes. And I hope that the pandemic has given us young people and, you know, older people yeah. <laughs> like myself, the yeah, opportunity to really think about that. Yeah. What really matters, you know, and I think that the divisions that were exposed in our beliefs and in our communities were heartbreaking, but also opportunities to heal. Yeah. You know, how are we going to guide our young people? It's, I think it starts with looking at what we have, look at, looking at what remains. You know, and how do you build out of that rubble? What are we grateful for? What skills do we have? What do we want to choose? Mm -hmm. And that's that's the beginning of stepping into transformation and that new normal, which can actually be a lot better, a lot richer than the old normal. There is much to celebrate. I want to thank you very much for being with me. Jade Richardson Bach is the executive director of the Children's Grief Center here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you for the time. Millennials and Generation Z are progenitors of social media, memes, fashion, and music. Many of them probably have not experienced loss, but COVID-19 changed that. Who can they turn to when looking for help? The COVID Grief Network is a really good place to start. Noah Cochran is a clinical social worker and part of the COVID Grief Network's core leadership team. Here, they explain the difference in working with people in their 20s and 30s. Often folks in their 20s and 30s, if they're experiencing big loss, are the first people in their peer groups to lose someone. And I think that that can often be true for children as well. But when we're working with young adults, there's a particular type of isolation that comes with grief at that age, because often we don't have friends or other community or peers who have had the same experience. Mm. There's a lot of pressure on everyone at this moment to get back out there, to pick up mm -hmm. business as usual. Is that different for people who are in their 20s and 30s? You know, I think in some ways, no. Mm. <laughs> I'm in this age demographic also in 30, and I think there is such an impulse right now to be alive in the world in a way that hasn't been possible in this past year because of the restrictions in place. Yeah. Um, but something that we do see is that folks who have experienced big loss to COVID this year feel really complicated about the fact that there is this language around like returning to normal and getting back into the world. Mm -hmm. Because for people who have lost someone to COVID, that's not possible. The world isn't going to go back to the way it was. There's yeah. There's a lot of grief and bittersweetness about being able to return to a world where our loved ones aren't. You know, in dealing with grief, and some people have recognized a grief and they're going with it, other people have yet to find what they're actually grieving about. Mm. When grief is unaddressed, really, in your opinion, what do you think happens with it when we don't really recognize grief? Let me think for myself as someone who has experienced big loss. Both of my parents died when I was a teenager. Oh. I have found that... Grief is never over. Grief is not linear. I think there are some ways that I've been able to be present with my grief throughout the course of my life, but there are ways that I can't be present with my grief all the time. And something that I've found for myself that I've also heard other people talk about and seen other people is that when we can't be with grief, it can come out 
sideways. It can come out in different ways, whether that's feeling frustrated or irritated or sad, really anything. I think any emotion can be a part of grieving. I think Mm -hmm. often there's a story in the world that grief is just sadness, but actually it's, I feel like it's everything. Something that I've noticed that does bring me to feel grief in a different way is when I'm with other people who have access to something that I don't, relationships with their families, for example. And so that's something that I think about this sort of return to the world as people are able to access their loved ones and their communities and their families in different ways. I wonder what that will be like for people who have lost someone this year to COVID or not, Mm -hmm. but there's going to be a new awareness of what grief can feel like in witnessing other people get to have Mm -hmm. access to relationships that we don't have anymore. With that sense of feeling grief, experiencing grief, working through grief, adjusting to grief, Mm Do you see a link in your work between grief and transformation? Absolutely. I was just a part of a conversation last night with a group of folks who have lost loved ones, and they talk about the clarity that can come with and through grief that can feel really transformative. Hmm. I can see more clearly what matters to me, where my priorities are. I can love more deeply and widely when I can turn towards what's painful about grief, too. One of the reasons that we wanted to create the COVID Grief Network and bring people into community with each other is to be in the deep depths of sorrow and rage and confusion about grief, but also in the growth and the healing and the transformation. I think it's such a metamorphosis to come into closer contact with, oh, mortality and the truth of change and the inevitability of, of death and dying and illness. Yeah. I think people who are really willing to be close to that can be really transformed by it. You mentioned metamorphosis and this, mm-hmm. this evolution that I think mm-hmm. we're all in the midst of. Some people recognize it and have taken hold of it. Other people, it'll maybe dawn upon them in hopefully months or the years to come. And how do we work through a metamorphosis and an evolution and a change mm-hmm. within ourselves and balancing caution, the need to move mm-hmm. forward and the necessity for like healing and grieving? Right. I mean, that just makes me think about how messy and complicated mm-hmm. metamorphosis and transformation is. It's not pretty. It's not easy. It can feel like we're going sideways and in directions that we never even knew were possible all at the same time. Yeah. I really believe in the power of relationships and in community to be held in and by other people who love us and who can support us. And there's also aspects of this process that we can only do on our own. Yes. And it's painful and scary. And I think also beautiful and sacred, just allowing as much as possible for space for whatever is Mm-hmm. and not having any expectation around what it might look like or be like. Sometimes when people are transforming, the people closest to them, family, friends, they may not approve or really understand. Mm-hmm. What's your advice for someone who wants to move forward and feels this transformational moment emerging within them, yet the people they would rely on for support or understanding mm-hmm. aren't quite there? And how mm-hmm. can they do this without letting the opinions of others really stunt their personal growth? I first want to say that I- I, I can know how painful that is and something that I talk with people about in their experiences of grief and have experienced myself is that often through these periods of time, a lot of relationships might end or change as yeah. we realize and learn and feel who can be present for us and who can't be. And I feel like when it's the people who are closest to us or who we thought would be there, our yeah. family, our closest friends, when they can't be, there's such it's like another form of grief that can mm-hmm. happen with grief mm-hmm. of 
of not just losing someone to death, but our communities being really transformed by the process. But I know that there are people out there who believe that grief is transformative and that in being close to it, we can come closer to truth and to honesty and bravery. I really trust that folks who are in that place, it is possible to find other community and I want that for them. You know, is that like really a matter of opinion, other people's views of us? And if so, does opinion matter? I know the old (laughs) saying about opinions. You know, if someone feels a transformation is imminent, but they're stuck, a little unsure of how to get started, what are some tricks that can help them with that push so they make that first step on this journey of transformation? What has been most powerful for me is just to, to give myself time and space You know, even if that's okay, I'm going to sit down for five minutes and really just let myself imagine what's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there's so much power in creating space that there is no story or expectation to in order to feel what might be there. I would encourage folks to offer themselves space and time and gentleness. Also be willing to reach out to other people who might be able to show them some shape of what's possible. Mm-hmm. Offering ourselves gentleness. That's not something mm. our society has taught us to do. No, not at all. But people are actively learning. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Noah Cochran mm-hmm. is a co-founder of the COVID Grief Network. They work with young adults. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope to talk with you again in the future. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. For all of the reopening excitement and summer buzz going around, Let us not forget that the pandemic is still going on. People are still becoming infected and some are dying. The disparate nature of the resources and access is still being felt by underserved communities. Our work is not over. Kristen Ortiza is the co-founder, co-executive director, and chief activist for Marked by COVID, a volunteer organization that addresses the policy needs the pandemic brought to light. She begins by telling me what prompted her to start the organization. I lost my dad on June 30th of last year to COVID. It's the reason why I launched the organization, because I knew there wouldn't be a normal for the families of the over 600,000 people who were forced to sacrifice a loved one. And quite frankly, normal is what got us into this situation to begin with. I don't think I want to go back to normal where normal is a place where my community, which is 70% Latino, had the highest rates of COVID in the world at the beginning of the summer surge. How does Marked by COVID really address and help people come to terms with the loss that they have suffered? We have community gatherings once a week where people get to meet others who have been impacted by COVID and learn ways to really channel their emotions and their quest for their loved ones to not have died in vain into actually action. So we have folks who are working on the local level, the state level, all the way to the national level to contact decision makers share our stories and demand that in our quest to rebuild, we actually rebuild in a way that does not leave our loved ones behind, does not leave us behind, and actually addresses the systemic issues that got us to this place in the first place. People who are doing this work have suffered such loss. How is the community really supporting each other? It is a lot of mutual aid work. We are providing support for one another from 
friendly phone calls and text messages where we commiserate on just the pain and the grief and also the confusion that many of us feel whenever we see how some folks are have been handling and continue to handle this public health crisis. But also in our community meetings, we make plans for actions. We've had hundreds of online as well as offline in the community vigils. We've done memorials at places all across the country. Those have been really great opportunities for people to take a moment and take a beat and recognize that 600,000 people dead in one year is not normal. It's not okay. And as a result, it is okay to feel everything that you're feeling right now. Tell me about your experience after you lost your father, because you immediately went into action to create this organization so that other people would find solace and community if they lost people. Tell me about your grief process and how it's been. I didn't miss a beat. The day that we buried my father, we launched Mark by COVID. This group has saved me. I don't think that I would be able to put together sentences. I was so upset. My childhood neighborhood, a community called Maryville, which is in Phoenix, saw the brunt of it. And this was a community of folks who didn't have the extreme privilege to Netflix and chill during the pandemic. They were the folks that were out in the grocery stores or in the pharmacies or the janitors who were ensuring that our economy kept going. And they were the folks that were getting sick and dying, people like my dad. So I sort of just asked myself, if I care about racial justice, if I care about my community, I have to say something or else I thought I was going to explode. I was so enraged. And I know for me in my grief journey, I won't feel whole again until we see the types of solutions at the national level that one, memorialize our loved ones, two, acknowledge that this pandemic was fundamentally life altering for all of us. And three, that we really invest the money, the time, the resources, and the focus in ensuring that us and other communities that have been disproportionately harmed have what they need to participate in this economic system without further disadvantage because they have shouldered this pandemic. What can we do to transform our thoughts so that not only can we handle what's here with COVID, but we can then deal with anything that comes in the future. Whether you are a grocery store worker doing overtime or in a you know big office somewhere, uh, making some sort of like tech product, all the way down the road, you're expected to put in 110%. And I think part of what we have seen through the course of this pandemic is that there's not enough space for us as human beings. And I think part of the, the opportunity here when it comes to grief in action is allowing yourself to accept and acknowledge that you are grieving, that you are hurt, that you are mourning, that you have lost something that you loved, whether it's your lifestyle, a loved one, a parent, a fortune, that is real. That vulnerability is a superpower that can be channeled into making the world a better place. Taking that energy, changing it into something that is positive for us all. Kristen Urquiza is the co-founder, co-executive director, and chief activist for Marked by COVID. Kristen, thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. 
The University of New Mexico's Office of the Medical Investigator has a grief services program that features highly trained mental health professionals who possess experience and expertise when dealing with the effects of traumatic grief. Trauma consultant and grief counselor Nancy Mance is one of those professionals and joins me now. Tell us about the grief services program through OMI. What we do here is we serve the families that are dealing with a sudden death that is being investigated by the Office of Medical Investigator. Often those deaths are related to homicide, suicide, accident, and we provide one-on-one individual counseling. We also provide a variety of group services that change from time to time. Basically what we're doing is supporting families in the immediate aftermath of a sudden death, also supporting families long after the fact, because often people are just not ready to interact with counseling in a day or a week or a month. It might be a year or two or three before they're even ready and able to begin to plumb the depths of that loss. We know that not everybody can afford therapy. What are the things that their families and friends can do to help them? The first thing I want to mention is our services are free to our clients, but you do have to be involved in a death investigation. What I would say, though, is counseling is just one avenue of support and even not always a good fit for many people. So many avenues of support exist, a spiritual community, your social network, your friendship groups, family, when you have the luxury of having a supportive family. So relying on your informal supports and identifying who it is in your networks is a first place that you can turn to. It may not even be that you're going to talk about your loss. It might be, I'm going to sit in the same room with you and drink a cup of tea, and that is support. It could be the wilderness or nature. And in fact, nature has a wonderful way of helping balance the more negative experiences that we're dealing with. If you're able to focus your attention in a really generalized manner on breathing in the air as you walk, feeling your muscles propelling you, hearing the birds, looking at the plants around you, and really taking your attention away from the loss, your grief, your sadness, just allowing it to drift on something else that can be quite helpful. You know, the losses in the pandemic weren't only because of coronavirus itself. Did you see a rise in other kinds of deaths that were related to the pandemic? There's a rise in deaths in general. We have more suicides that we're dealing with. Homicides have gone up, accidental overdose, drug overdose. On top of that, the pandemic has affected people's capacity. They're already stretched thin with the changes that have occurred losses of jobs, losses of social connection, big interruptions in your daily life. Now, is the state currently, do we have the capacity to really help New Mexicans who are struggling with grief? Over the past decade, capacity and behavioral health resources 
in the state really decreased. At the moment, our resources are insignificant in terms of the number of people that need support. Tell me about the consequences of delaying healing from grief. I mean, how do those setbacks really affect our ability to move on and forward in life? You know, how many of us are recognizing the grief that we are currently in, given what we went through last year? I think that people often look for an event or something that is easy to recognize as that's why I have grief. Somebody died, the loss of a pet, a house burned down, changes in physical health, but the kind of grief that just about everyone in our society is at risk for is grief around normalcy or feeling normal. So here we've spent the past 15 months abnormally, not connecting to one another. We've got these masks on. We can't see our grandchildren. And now we can just rip our masks off. I mean, there's just this subtle sense of uneasiness, like, I don't know if I can trust this. This feels like a rocking ship, and it still feels like the ship has not settled down. Yeah, it's uh, about finding this balance. And now we're, we're coming out again, and we're all expected to get right back to work after there's losses. Now that the state is going to be fully reopened, how can we manage both our losses and the changes as we emerge? I think it's always very important to give yourself permission to pay attention to your instincts. If you feel uneasy, like, I'm not too sure I'm ready to hang out at the bar, then you really want to allow that to inform you around your self-care as you're beginning to re-engage, as you're beginning to create and recreate your connections and think about how you want to move forward in the next year. Nancy Mance is a trauma consultant, grief counselor at the Office of the Medical Investigator, OMI. Nancy, thank you so much for this great conversation. I really appreciate you taking time. Thank you so much for inviting me. On the next No More Normal, if you want a sign that things are picking back up, just look in the stands of televised sporting events. The stands are getting packed. Last year, it was the NBA that was the first major American institution to put a halt to its operations as COVID set in. Where are we a year later? How did COVID and the growing awareness of social issues affect the world of sports? Next week, we find out the score on No More Normal. As always, we want to thank our guests for sharing their experience, expertise, and insight. Special thanks to Jazzstone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Business School, Sundog, and Olaud Records for providing music to the show. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt produced some of the show's themes. Special shout out to Yasmin Khan, Kaveh Movahead, and Megan Kamert for helping out with editing. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It is produced and hosted by yours truly. I'm Khalil Colonna. For everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening.